Welcome back, Heming Brainiacs, to the Hemingway List podcast, Epilogue 2, Chapter 6. In previous chapters, Tolstoy critiques the great man lens of history, but in this chapter he implicitly states that power is defined by the ability to give orders and have those orders carried out. Do you find this contradictory? What is Tolstoy getting at with his description of people giving orders but not participating in the actions they order? Um, what is he getting at? I think it's quite literal. I think he's just literally talking about the chain of command in the army and how the more orders you are permitted to give, the less action you usually take, or something like that. Um, which, I guess, was the case at, with that time. I don't know. Uh, the Koreshi says, I'm reading the remaining words like a good student and also making a list of chapters. I'm going to skip in the reread. Um, fair enough. Twisted Every Way seems to agree, saying, I think that if ever there was a case for an abridgment of a novel, War and Peace is it. I love... Uh, we can't help but just kind of uh, critique the fact that there is an epilogue at all. <laughs> the whole of this epilogue, we don't actually talk about the content because it's just so bleh. We just kind of rag on, you know, remove this whole bit from the novel. Um, FDLP1 says, Having described human power as a funnel, a missed opportunity to contrast it with the beehive structure. Still on the edge of my seat if we're going to see one more bee analogy. Oof. Wouldn't that be the dream? That's that's really the best we can hope for at this point. One more bee analogy. Um, if it doesn't come in the book, I think we should all do our own bee analogies. We'll sum up the book in the um, the you know when we finish the novel, we'll have sort of a general discussion of the book post. But you'll only be able to discuss the book using bee analogies. Um, <laughs> that'll be perfect. Way to end the year. Karikikar says, "I think the contradiction between these those giving orders having power and those below not having power, despite all his previous arguments against this, is on purpose here." I think he's using a, te- a technique where he presents what might feel like a contradiction, but then resolves it later, hopefully persuading us away from our criticisms. Setting up his own straw man. You reckon? Hmm, maybe, maybe you're right. Um, Alright, what's the next one? Chapter 7, let's go. goes like this. When an event is taking place, people express their opinions and wishes about it and as the the event results from the collective activity of many people some one of the opinions or wishes expressed is sure to be fulfilled if not but approximately when one of the opinions expressed is fulfilled that opinion gets connected with the event as a command preceding it well i'm already i'm already bamboozled by this chapter what is he talking about uh men are holding a log Each of them expresses his opinion as to how and where to haul it. They haul the log away, and it happens that this is done as one of them said. He ordered it. There we have command and power in the primary form. The man who ordered... Sorry. The man who worked most with his hands could not think so much about what he was doing or reflect on on or command what would result from the common activity. While the man who commanded more would evidently work less with his hands on account of his greater vocal activity verbal activity I should say 
When some larger concourse of men direct their activity to a common aim, there is a yet sharper division of those who, because their activity is given to directing and commanding, take less part in the direct work. When a man works alone, he always has a certain set of reflections, which is, it seems, to him directed his past activity, justify his present activity and guide him in planning his future actions. Just the same is done by a concourse of people allowing those who do not take a direct part in the activity to devise considerations, justifications and surmises concerning their collective activity. For reasons known or unknown to us, the French began to drown and kill one another, and corresponding to the event its justification appears in people's belief that this was necessary for the welfare of France, for liberty and for equality. People ceased to kill one another, and this event was accompanied by its justification in the necessity for a centralization of power, resistance to Europe, and so on. Men went from the west to the east, killing their fellow men, and the event was accompanied by phrases about the glory of France, the baseness of England, and so on. History shows us that these justifications of the events have no common sense and are all contradictory, as in the case of killing a man as the result of recognizing his rights and the killing of millions in Russia for the humiliation of England. But these justifications have a very necessary significance in their own day. These justifications release those who produce the events from moral responsibility. These temporary aims are like the broom fixed in front of a locomotive to clear the snow from the rails in front. They clear men's moral responsibilities from their path. With such justification, there would be no reply to the simplest question that presents itself when examining each historical event. How is it that millions of men commit collective crimes, make war, commit murder, and so on? With the present complex forms of political and social life in Europe, can any event that is not prescribed, decreed, or ordered by monarchs, ministers, parliaments, or newspapers be imagined? Is there any collective action which cannot find its justification in political unity, in patriotism, in the balance of power, or in civilization, so that every event that occurs inevitably coincides with some expressed wish and receiving a justification presents itself as the result of the will of one man or of several men. In whatever direction a ship moves, the flow of the waves it cuts will always be noticeable ahead of it. To those on board the ship, the movement of those waves will be the only perceptible motion. Only by watching closely, moment by moment, the movement of that flow and comparing it with the movement of the ship, do we convince ourselves that every bit of it is occasioned by the forward movement of the ship, and that we were led into error by the fact that we ourselves were imperceptibly moving. We see the same if we watch moment by moment the movement of historical characters, that is, re-establish the inevitable condition of all that occurs, the continuity of movement in time, and do not lose sight of the essential connection of historical persons with the masses. When the ship moves in one direction, there is one and the same wave ahead of it. When it turns frequently, the wave ahead of it also turns frequently. But wherever it may turn, there is always, will be, there always will be the wave anticipating its movement. Whatever happens, it always appears that just that event was foreseen and decreed. Wherever the ship may go, the rush of water which neither directs nor increases its movement foams ahead of it, and at a distance seems to us not merely to move to, of itself, but to govern the ship's movement also. 
examining only those expressions of the will of historical persons which, as commands, were related to events, historians have assumed that the events depended on those commands, but examining the events themselves and the connection in which the historical person stood to the people, we have found that they and their orders were dependent on events. The incontestable proof of this deduction is that, however many commands were issued, the event does not take place unless there are other causes for it, but as soon as an event occurs, be it what it may, then out of all the continually expressed wishes of different people, some will always be found which by their meaning and their time of utterance are related as commands to the events. Arriving at this conclusion, we can reply directly and positively to these two essential questions of history. What is power? What force produces the movement of the nations? Power is the relation of a given person to other individuals, in which the more this person expresses opinions, predictions, and justifications of the collective action that is performed, the less is his participation in that action. The movement of nations is caused not by power, nor by intellectual activity, nor even by a combination of the two, as historians have supposed, but by the activity of all the people who participate in the events, and who always combine in such a way that those talking those taking the largest direct share in the event take on themselves the least responsibility and vice versa. Morally, the wielder of power appears to cause the event. Physically, it is those who submit to the power, but as the moral activity is inconceivable without the physical, the cause of the event is neither in the one nor the other, but in the unison union of the two. Or in other words, the conception of a cause is inapplicable to the phenomena we are examining, in the last analysis we reach the circle of infinity, that final limit which in every domain of a man of, of thought man's reason arrives if it is not playing with the subject. Electricity produces heat, heat produces electricity, atoms attract each other and atoms repel one another. Speaking of the interaction of heat and electricity and of atoms, we cannot say why this occurs and we say that it is so because it is inconceivable otherwise, because it must be so and that is that it is a law. The same applies to historical events. Why war and revolution occur we do not know. We only know that to produce the one or the other action people combine in a certain formation in which they all take part, and we say that this is so because it is unthinkable otherwise, or in other words, that is a law. Alright, there we go. Another chapter down. Tolstoy. Going deep into it. Alright, see you tomorrow.